Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I think that's the way to teach people about the business. And, you know, just to be serious for a second, it's not about generalities. Tell stories, which is what you're doing, and people will begin to understand the job through the anecdote. That's the best way to teach. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Exciting day today, David Friendly. I am going to give him the proper introduction. David Friendly is an Academy Award-nominated producer, best known for his Best Picture nominee, Little Miss Sunshine. He began his career in journalism at age 22 when he was named staff writer for Newsweek, and he actually had an office on the third floor of the building that we are taping this podcast in. Incredible. He later joined the Los Angeles Times where he was an entertainment reporter and had his own weekly column, First Look. As I mentioned before, his lineage is great because his father was the legendary news producer and CBS president, Fred Friendly, who was portrayed by George Clooney in the Academy Award-nominated film Good Night and Good Luck. He has been a film producer and motion picture executive for over 25 years, and during his career he has produced over... 25 films to date. That's 25 movies, 25 films. It reminds me of 1975, the Red Sox, when they lost the World Series. Denny Doyle said, What, you know, asked him, What kind of personality do you have in the clubhouse? And he said, I'll tell you what kind of personalities we have 25 guys, 25 cabs. But that has nothing to do with David Friendly. <laughs> One movie a year average. That's incredible. He's worked with some of the most prestigious directors, including Ron Howard, Ed Zwick, and the team of Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. Friendly recently completed principal photography on his first documentary, Sneakerheads, which he wrote, produced, and directed. His television pilot, Queen of the South, based on the novel La Reina del Sur, and it will air on USA starting in January. In addition, Friendly's next feature film project, IT stars Pierce Brosnan and is filming right now. As we speak. Friendly is the producer and creative force behind the hugely profitable 
Big Mama's House franchise, which has generated three films which have grossed over $400 million worldwide. In 2006, Friendly formed his own production company, Friendly Films, prior to launching his own company. He partnered with financier Mark Turltob and former Deep River Productions. During his six-year tenure at the company, he produced Little Miss Sunshine with Greg Kinnear and Abigail Breslin and Laws of Attraction with Pierce Brosnan and Julianne Moore. Friendly was president of Davis Entertainment from 1994 to 99 and produced numerous films there. This led to a first-look producing deal at 20th Century Fox, where he eventually produced Big Mama's House with Martin Lawrence, Here on Earth with Josh Hartnett, Courage Under Fire with Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan, Out to Sea with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and Dr. Doolittle with Eddie Murphy. Hacks. <laughs> Friendly's movie career began at Imagine Entertainment, where he executive produced numerous films there, including My Girl with Macaulay Culkin, for the Love of Money with Michael J. Fox, and Greedy with Kirk Douglas. During his tenure at Imagine, he rose to present the production where he also oversaw The Burbs, The Dream Team, Kindergarten Cop, and Backdraft. Presently, Friendly serves on the board of the Producers Guild of America and produced the 2009 and 2010 Producers Guild Award Show. For the last 15 years, he's been an active member of the Friends Board, with the Saban Free Clinic, which provides affordable, quality health care to those most in need. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome <laughs> a very, very friendly and wonderfully talented producer, David Friendly. Thank you. That, that was some introduction. I um, The cold opening was incredible, first of all, because I, would, I love to be grouped with somebody like Jerry Weintraub. Because to me, and I don't have half of his financial success for sure, and maybe not even half of his creative success. But here's the thing about all producers, which I believe firmly, is that all great producers are great salesmen. That is the fundamental first rule of producing. And there was no better salesman, I had the privilege of meeting him several times, than Jerry Weintraub. I think he could have sold anything to anybody, and he was a dreamer, and he was a promoter, and... All of those things are what got me interested in the movie business. Uh, it's ironic because, you know, it takes an outsider to make this analogy. Jerry came out of the music business, and I was a concert promoter in college. I went to Northwestern, and I spent four years producing concerts. And I mean every kind of band you could imagine from we did Jerry Garcia in the small auditorium as a solo act, and I had to get him. First thing he asked me was to find him an ounce of pot, which was not hard to do at, <laughs> at, at a college in 1978. And all the way up to the Beach Boys, which I did two shows with them in the big hall. And, um, you know, like a Jerry Weintraub, and I, I was thinking about it as you were doing the cold opening. I had this rule when I was the concert promoter that anybody that I booked, I had to introduce. Simple. And the reason for it was I felt that I could meet girls if I introduce the band. So along comes, I booked BB King. I only booked acts that I liked and I love BB King, great blues guitar player. And, uh, they came to me and they said, you know, here's the thing. BB's been doing this for a long time and he's always introduced by his musical director and it's choreographed. And, and, uh, so would you mind if we did? And I said, yeah, I would mind. I introduce all the bands. Just teach me. So we had to have a rehearsal, and I had to come in on cue, 
And I had to say the greatest uh, blues guitar player in the history, you know, whatever the introduction was, and I had to hit the note, and I did it. And I tell the story because I didn't know any better. I mean, basically, I probably should have surrendered, but I didn't because that was my compensation. I never got paid a nickel, and it was my favorite job I ever had. And I'm going to tie it back into, you mentioned my father, Fred Friendly, who was a very serious, smart guy. A fantastic father and a great uh, journalist. I mean, he was legend. He's growing up around a legend, right? And when I got graduated Northwestern, I had several job offers to be a concert promoter, work for concert promoters. Jerry Michelson, who was in Chicago, and various people. I turned them all down because I didn't think my father would approve. Which, looking back, is kind of crazy, but it is what it is. And I went to Newsweek as a summer intern. I thought, well, I'll do this for a for a couple of months and I ended up staying there for six years. And as you pointed out, I was staff writer there when I was 22, uh, which I was not ready for. Uh, but I spent nine years in journalism, mostly, mostly to please my father, which I don't think I've ever said on the record. Now it turned out to be great training. I don't think of it as a mistake because I think journalism trains you for lots of other things really well. I learned to write fast, write well, and articulate ideas quickly, which, by the way, served me incredibly well when I left the LA Times and went to work for Brian Grazer, who really was my mentor. I call him my reluctant mentor because he was <laughs> my boss, who had a very limited attention span. I'm not saying anything he wouldn't say. And I had to read scripts and pitch it to him in sometimes under two minutes. I specifically remember one day going in to pitch him a story and he just laid down on the floor and he said, you're killing me. What happens? Just tell me what happens. <laughs> and uh, so ironically, I think it all kind of ties together because I think the journalism training turned out to be exactly what the seasoning I needed to then make my way into the movie business. But I had the bug in college when I was promoting concerts because a promoter is a producer. It's all the same as far as I'm concerned. So I would do the posters. I would pick up the band at the airport. Uh, the Beach Boys, I remember, this was really interesting, had in there, they have a thing called a rider in a contract. Yeah, which, just so you know, every concert act has what's called a technical rider, which not only uh, details where they want their microphones and where they want their equipment and all the spots that they want everything, the lighting, but it also has their requests for the dressing room, which are some of the most unusual things you could ever find. In yes. The and in this case, the Beach Boys wanted avocado and banana sandwiches on dark bread, which in the winter in Chicago is not easy. But we found it. We 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 uh, we fulfilled the obligation of the rider. And, you know, I just loved it. I loved putting on a show. I never asked for a nickel. It never occurred to me. I made the money, the school, thousands of dollars uh, over the course of four years. And to this day, it was my favorite job. And and um, I think there's a lesson in that, which is something you were talking about earlier. I think people can do a lot more than they think, but you're going to do what you love the best. Yeah, and I think what you said, which is fascinating for our audience, and I always try to stress, and a lot of the guests stress, is the fact that you had an offer, uh, multiple offers for money, more money than you'd ever made in your entire life. 
And regardless if it was about your dad or whatever, the fact is, is that you went to do something for free instead, something where you felt might be better off because your dad said you'd be better off doing that. And somebody who you respected told you that. And instead of taking the money, you struggled and didn't have much money to do things, but you went for it and you believed if you did a great job and there you would move up. And clearly, of course, you did a great job because you were a staff writer at 22 years old. How many staff writers were there at 22? Zero. And let me just say this. I was surrounded by some of the great writers in New York. There was a sports writer called Pete Axnell. They called him the Axe. Legendary. The, the guy that wrote about polit- politics and national affairs, Peter Goldman. One of the greatest print journalists ever. Um, so I was surrounded by this enormous talent. And there I was moving along very quickly, partially because of my own aggressiveness, but also because of who I was. I was Fred Friendly's kid. He must be good. You know, I really believe that was part of it. What was really interesting about the experience is, and it ties into things that happened to me later in life, is that when I was in a corner under the most stress, very often I did my best work. Um, And so... At Newsweek, it was a a crazy experience because they would have reporters in the field and the reporters would send a file in. They'd be doing a story about the surge in in, uh, bottled water. This was a new thing in the the late 70s, early 80s. Perrier versus Pellegrino. I I was writing in the business section. So I would get files from all over the world. This is this is what's happening with bottled water in Texas. This is what's happening in California. It's called a roundup. And these files would come in as the week progressed. And you'd have about, you know, 50 pages of files from all over the country on Thursday. And then on Friday, you had to pitch your editor and write the story and turn it in in like four hours. I'm 22 years old. I look back and I think, how did I do that? And I remember being very nervous, but being very exhilarated by it and cut to later in life. I I mentioned before, I had this very difficult and very inspiring boss who was very demanding, you know, Brian Grazer and boss says Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, and they wanted results and they wanted things quickly. And the pressure that I was under as a journalist served me well under them. If you met these guys in a room, you'd think they were just a lot of laughs and really fun and and very entertaining because they are, but they were intense and they wanted to win and they were going to win. And if you didn't help them win, you were going to be out. And that was just the way it was. So the story I like to tell about my early years uh, at Imagine was that there was a writer's strike in the 19... I left the paper in 1987, and the writer's strike happened in 1988, I believe. And I get this call one day from my boss, and it's Brian, and he says, hey, how you doing? I said, okay, kind of quiet, can't really meet with any writers because there's a strike, and I want to explain that. When there's a strike going on, the guild will not allow their, their members to meet with producers or studios. They are just on the sideline. Now, I just want to share yeah. something with the audience. As in life, not everyone goes by the rules. And there are certain producers that would meet with writers on the side, but I don't think Brian and Ron were those kind. No, they were playing by the rules. 
But Brian said to me, just because there's a strike on doesn't mean we're going to keep you around. You better find us a movie. And that's what I remember. The last thing he said was, you better find us a movie. And then the rest of the sentence was implicit, but it was like, or you're going to be out of a job. That's what he was saying. And I hung up the phone and I thought, I was pretty successful in journalism. I'm at the LA Times. I have my own column. Why did I do this? Of course, I didn't anticipate a strike coming or anything. So I hung up the phone and I called an old a friend of mine at, at CAA. The young agent later tragically killed himself named Jay Maloney. Of course. And he was a big supporter of mine. Great guy. Love him and miss him. And I said, Jay, Brian just almost fired me. What do I do? And he said, all right. Take a deep breath. He said, I'm going to send you a list of every producer in the town. We have such a list. It's typed at the time. It wasn't even on a computer. And you should go down that list, see who you know, and see if somebody has a script that's available but didn't get made that you could take on. So he sends the list over. It's alphabetical. I get to the D's, and there is Rafaela De Laurentiis. Rafaela De Laurentiis was the daughter of Dino De Laurentiis, one of the legends of the business. Legendary action movie thriller kind of producer. At the time, she is running the company, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, DEG. I called her up. I said, Rafi, I got to come see you. I had profiled her in the LA Times. And there was a famous photograph for the story where she had her feet up on the desk, bare feet. So it was her bare feet up on the desk. And she said, oh, you sound terrible. What's going on? I said, I got to come see you, and I'm not leaving without a script. You have to give me a script. So I drive over to her office, and I said, what have you got? She said, well, we don't have much, but there's a script, but you guys would never make this. It's about firemen. I said, sounds great. What is it? Let me see. And the script was backdraft. And I take the script, and... It's sort of like in limbo. There's some producers on it who are, who I knew, Richard Lewis and Penn Densham and John Watson, and they have a company called Trilogy, but it's just, it's not going to get made there. And she says, maybe you can get it made with your guys and we can come aboard. And I said, don't worry about that. Let me just, let me just read it. So I read the script and it's sort of a programmer. It's good. It, it needs some work, but I like it. And I put it on what they call weekend read. Weekend read is obviously... Everybody at the company can put something on the read, and you would take home very often 10 to 12 scripts a weekend. Before email, Yeah, you'd see these agents and producers in elevators. Like, the strap was always breaking because they'd have all these scripts in their bag, and you'd wonder, how do these people have a personal life? So now, here's the genius of, of Brian. So, I put it on weekend read. And there's the Monday morning staff meeting. And he says, this script backdraft, what does everybody think? And he goes around the room and people are dumping on it. It reads like a TV movie. I've seen it before. This is okay writing, nothing special. And he gets to me and he goes, well, why'd you put it on weekend read? And I said, I thought the fire was like a character. I liked the brothers relationships. And it just seemed, I think firemen are heroic. It's interesting to me. And he goes in front of the whole company. Well, Ron agrees he's going to direct it. And the room goes dead silent. 
and then the backpedaling begins. Well, it did have some good things. I did like this, and everybody's reversing their field. I get out of the room. I go in my office, and Brian comes down, knocks on the door, and he high-fives me. This is a week after he was just about to fire me. And that's when I learned that you can always turn things around, and you may have a terrible day as a producer on Monday and having your best day the next day, and the main thing is to just keep at it. Stay in the game. Fantastic. And that's that, all true, every bit of that story. That's one of the best stories we've ever had here. That is Great. Awesome. Can I go now? <laughs> you are not allowed to leave. Um, but also, I just want to finish that by saying that's why Brian is as successful as he is. He knows how to motivate people. He knows how to get the most out of them. And directing to what, to what you were talking about, calm versus the storm, I believe that he manages with, or used to, I don't know if he still does, because it's been a long time, but he managed with the storm, and he created anxiety, and I have to say, he got the best out of me. I, I, I did some of my best work for him. I found my girl, backdraft, kindergarten cop. I was on a roll, and I was petrified most of the time. <laughs> yeah, he always operated in the storm, and what was strange was when you would meet him in that beautiful office, and the colors yeah. and everything, yeah. incredible, and the loved all the family photos and just it just seemed so casual didn't it? you'd, you'd sit down there and, and you'd meet with him and again it's what you said you know the best producers are salespeople, and so they show that side of them as a salesperson and calm never showed that he had a short attention span sat long time wonderful and ron i believe there was a yin and a yang between the both i don't believe ron was the storm but it was more like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. You could tell me differently. But I think what's important is 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 to know that uh, Ron was like some guy that came over on the Mayflower. I never saw him sick a day in his life. I never saw a better work ethic in my life in anybody. And one of the sharpest minds I've ever seen. But there was a symbiotic relationship there. You could call it good cop, bad cop, whatever cliche you want to use. They each had their respective roles and they complemented each other beautifully and i think what was tricky for me was i always knew what brian was thinking but i never knew what ron was thinking that was the difference brian was transparent he was angry he was happy he was proud he was embarrassed with ron you you just didn't know which was also kind of cool and i just want to share something that ties into <laughs> everything we've been talking about when I was a young boy, one of my favorite characters on television was on the Andy Griffith Show, a black and white sitcom, Andy of Maybury, RFD, <laughs> and his son was Opie, and that was Ron Howard, yeah. and I related to him because I was a little blonde kid in my little town. When I was a teenager growing up, my favorite television show was Happy Days. And Ron Howard was an actor as a teenager, or at least a young 20-year-old, on Happy Days. Then when I went to college, I went to see a movie with my friends with Daryl Hannah mm -hmm. called Splash. And I loved the movie. And I wasn't paying much attention until the credit came up, directed by Ron Howard. And then I get more in the business, and I attend an Emmy Awards one time and arrest. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. The development wins the Emmy for Best Television Show. And who accepts the award but producer Ron Howard, television producer. And then, of course, the Academy Award so many times as a film producer winning an Academy Award. So this guy started off as a young actor. You left out the music man when oh, he was sorry. three years old. <laughs> That's right, the music man when he was three years old. So this guy's gone through every incarnation and done all sorts of different talents and gone for it and just didn't stick with one thing. I have to ask you something about um, Brian Grazier and the management style. Because you two produce and you are in charge of many people when you're on a set. You noticed that that style of the storm got the most out of you when you were a journalist, the fire, four hours, get it done now or you're fired. Ron Howard, there's a writer's strike. If you don't produce, you're fired. So you responded well to that, but you're on a set. You don't operate like that. That's not your management style, yet you've noticed all through your career that for you, that's the style that works best for you. Right. Look, I think 90% of the time, I, I am not like that, uh, but I did find in me, and if I hadn't found it, I think I would have failed. I did find in me there's a 10% part of my personality that comes out in extreme stress and when the stakes are highest where I be, just become a different person. And I don't, I'm not afraid of that person. I'm okay with letting that person out, but it literally... I'll give you an example. What am I talking about? I'd say 90% of the time, I'm a great listener. I was a journalist. Most people in our business do not listen well. They love to talk, but they don't listen. When you're a journalist, you have to listen because you're searching for pearls and quotes and things. So my strength would be director came down hard on the, on the costume designer, didn't like what was Put up that day the costume designer went off in tears i'm the guy that would go into the office of the costume designer and bring him or her back come on you're having a tough day you're going to turn this ship around i know you've got great skill you know you've got great talent let's write this ship it wasn't your best day but tomorrow will be better that's me 90 percent of the time 10 percent of the time i uh, this other person comes out that you have to have as a producer. You just have to have it, which is, I'll give you an example. We were making the third Big Mama's House, which was the hardest one to get made because looking back, you know, that's not an easy sell, part three. Part two is hard enough. Part three is really hard. And it's also harder, just so you know, 
the first Big Mama's house, you have Martin Lawrence, he's the star, and he gets paid a certain amount of money for that gig. No one knows if it's going to do well or not. He's still a big star, but he's making a certain amount of money. Then when that movie makes over $100 million or $200 million, they do a sequel. Then Martin Lawrence probably gets paid three to four times more than what he made in the first one and a much better back-end participation and a much greater sense of entitlement every time he goes to a new movie. But here's what happened. So, So we're making the movie for this company, New Regency, which did the first two, but in collaboration with Fox. It was a co-production. This one, they're on their own. And I'm told, if you get the budget to this number, we'll make the movie, which I'm excited about. I want to get the third one made. Explain to our audience before you go into the story this conundrum that every producer goes through. Whereas in these days and times, the budget for movies, it's very strange because even in television, you know that you see a budget for something, it's like $1.7 million for a half-hour sitcom, and you know that some teenage kids in Peoria made a half-hour that looks just as good as the one that's for $6 in a subway token. And so you know as a film producer that technically you can these days make things work, but back then it wasn't as easy. So explain the conundrum of how you bring something down to a number and how that conversation always seems to happen with you and how do you do it? Well, you wind up, the short answer is you wind up chasing incentives. Okay, so so my life, most of the travel in my life has been on movies. I've made movies Three movies in Ireland. I've made movies in Italy. I've made movies in Louisiana, New York, Atlanta. And you chase the incentives. So in the end, these incentives, which are basically states saying, come make your movie here. We'll give you a percentage of your budget back. If you come make the movie here, you can actually, along with other cost-saving measures, you can make a sequel for less than the one before, which never used to be the rule. So, so in this case, we were we made the third one uh, in um, Atlanta because the incentives were very strong there at the time. And when we hit that number, and I thought we were being green lit, they came back to me and said, "Yeah, we said that, but you need to take three or four million more out." And I had taken everything out I could. And I became an animal. That's the only way I would describe it. I remember where I was. I was in Mark Berg's office off of La Brea. Mark Berg, a great manager and producer as well, did the Saw movies. And I screamed into the phone where the entire office was sort of peeking up over their cubicles like, what's going on here? And I said, I worked too hard and too long to get to this point. You're going to live up to your word. You guys are making this effing movie. I did everything you asked me to, and you can't take this away from me now. And the next day, the movie was greenlit. And I don't believe if I had not gone to that 10% part of me that we ever would have gotten it made. Without that, it was it was like somebody else taking over your personality and your and you get off the phone and you're kind of shaking. You go, I either just killed my career or I, I'm going to get a green light. One of those two. So what I was saying to you is I, I definitely feel that most of the time 
I'm not that guy. That's not my style. But I think you have to have that gear. You have to be able to close. A, a successful producer is one who doesn't get almost to the finish line. They get there. They get there and they complete the race. And the hardest part in making movies is the, I call it the red zone. It's not that tough to get right up to the 10 yard line. It's really hard to get in the end zone. And the hard part is not uh, necessarily how the movie does, because you're not really in control of that. The hard part is closing and starting. That's the hardest part, that little 10-yard red zone. Do you feel if the roles were reversed and you were in Brian Grazer's position and you were managing yourself with your style, would you be as successful today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever have had a chance. Everything I learned that served me as a producer was from that foundation. Without them, I don't have a producing career. So in other words, like if your style, if somebody were in that position with your style of producing and your style of administration overseeing you in those early years, you wouldn't have been successful. I'd be doing something else. I really, I, I truly believe that. Uh, here's what I learned. First of all, I learned from Ron that I wasn't working very hard. And by the way, he never sat down and said to me, hey, you're not working very hard. But by his example, I realized that my work ethic sucked, okay? And I learned from Brian that I was going to have to amp up my ambition and amp up my intensity and amp up my desire. And I had to fight uh, that it wasn't going to come to me. I had to fight for it and take it. Those were the two things I learned from that. I didn't have either of those things. What is it, do you think? Because I think to myself, when I think of you as a producer and you hire all these people around you, they are inspired by you, and they do credit you as somebody who has helped them start mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. producing careers and what they're doing. You hire the people around you that work with your style that you know people will thrive, but maybe if they had Brian Grazier, they would just wilt and die. They might fall apart. <laughs> so you hire the people right. around you that fit your style. I think so. I think that's, I think it's a little bit like when you're putting together a movie uh, or a TV show or something, you're building a city, right? So, so who's going to be the postman? Who's going to be the fireman? Who's going to be a good chief of police, right? And you want this community to function together well. Well, you're going to pick people that you feel are talented, but you're also going to be drawn to personality types. For example, uh, you might be interviewing on a television show. You have a, 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 a producing director. A producing director is somebody that would say do the second episode and the fifth episode, but they're also going to be there to instruct the other directors who come in to do hours. And you want somebody in that position that can kind of coach the others and be a, almost like a, you know, a leader. And, a, and, a, and, a, and for me, then I want somebody come and, and who's going to listen. And, and, and maybe for one episode, I want the flashy guy who's going to fire somebody on the first day and, and create a ruckus, but I don't want that guy around all the time. So it just depends what you're doing. But I think when you're, when you're, when you're making a movie, you're creating a community and you're, you're, you're cognizant 
how is this person going to work with that person? If I hire this DP, how is how are they going to do with this? Design? For those of you who aren't in the yeah. business, DP, director of photography. Yeah. Sorry. So that was a long way. No, it's great. David will tell you, sometimes you have a film that you're doing that doesn't have a big budget and you're hiring a director that's not when you had somebody like Tom Shadiak in his heyday, he's making $10 million a film. But like you say, when you have certain budgets for things that you know you're going to have, sometimes you have to hire a first-time director. Then you want to hire a director of photography that has years and years of experience under great, great director. To compliment that person. That's a very, very good point. I'm good for one, one a year. One depends on the other. But I will I will love this story because it, it, it happened and it, and it, and it really taught me to trust my instincts uh we were doing little miss sunshine and everybody in town knew the script and liked it and a lot of directors were interested in it and and we started my partner at the time was mark turtle tab who you mentioned earlier and i was producing the movie with uh, these guys albert berger and ron yerksa who are a great independent production team we were all doing it together but uh these directors started coming in we started interviewing people to direct the movie and it came down to a very seasoned director and two newcomers, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And when John and Val came in, and it was a great lesson to me, we met in the conference room. And I remember walking into the conference room, and there were color pictures on the wall of what the movie would look like. They had uh, some sort of music device to play what the soundtrack would sound like. And they gave an incredible pitch about how they saw the movie. At this point, they had only done music videos and commercials. It never made a movie. The other candidate was a seasoned veteran who really liked the script. We knew could pull it off and would do a good job. But there was something tantalizing about these people. They were so into the movie they had thought about it how many movies had the other candidate directed since Probably you're not going to tell me their name a dozen a dozen movies yeah and some very successful and we went with the newcomer and this is a great lesson for all of you listening it as was I, gutsy it was gutsy but you would not have hired them if their presentation wasn't 10 times better than the seasoned veterans what i talk about before it's like when you've done 12 movies, you have a sense of entitlement. It's like that old story with Shelley Winters when she's asked to audition for the movie. And she's like, audition? Give me the address of that director. And she goes in and he, she stands there. And he's like, well, where's your audition? And she reaches through her bag, takes out her two Academy Awards, slams them <laughs> on his desk and says, there's my fucking audition. And, and that's what it is with the people who don't want to make a presentation because they're like, look, you want a presentation? Watch my fucking 12 movies. Yeah. But these people went in, they wanted it more, and it ties into what you talked about with the work ethic of people. And this is something I... Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to stress to everybody out there because I'm sitting in front of a lot of young people here. There's probably eight people witnessing this podcast, assistants, interns. And the thing is, is that when you're in a group of people working in any firm or any set or everywhere you are, there's going to be one person who's doing more than everybody else to get to the next level. And then there's going to be the 10th person out of 10 that's doing that. And if you're out there and you're listening to this, think about your office, think about wherever you are, think about whatever job you're doing and think about what number you are in the rankings. If you were just looking down from the heavens or in the, in the owner's office or in Ron Howard or Brian Grazer's office with all the people, who's the person that they believe is the go-to person that gets there before everybody else leaves after everybody else and is always generating more for that company. And that's the person number one. And that's what you should be doing out there to figure out how you can be that person. I, I agree with that. And I also think that that person has great radar. That's another th- a component of it. In other words, I've seen people come in and they're doing a dog and pony show and they've got too many pictures and they're talking too much and they've lost you 10 minutes into the presentation because they haven't gotten through the first act. So what I would say to, uh, about John and Val's presentation was you felt like you just watched the movie and you were in good hands. Now, it doesn't mean that if you come in and you've got you know, a one hour presentation that that's going to be the best because that might, you might lose your audience in that hour, the attention span thing again. So it's a combination of factors. It's not just preparing. It's not just being the hungriest. It's, it's also knowing how to sell to your audience. You know, that's part of selling, right? It's like a a standup, you know, might be brilliant for seven minutes, but after 12 minutes, you've lost interest. There's this, this fall off point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an incredible experience. And, and the other moral of the story was, I remember talking about it with Mark and Albert and Ron and just saying, guys, let's take a chance on these guys. I feel it. We all felt it. Let's do it. Let's gamble. And we did. And we, we got tremendous results. doesn't always work out that way, but it was fun to do that. That was really fun. You got to take risks. I hope you don't mind at this stage of the podcast, but I know it's a late in the podcast to do this, but I think it's important. Do you mind if I just, for a little bit, I go way, way, way back and just take me to how you grew up and mm. what your situation was, where you were. We already know your father sure. and, and being in the shadow of your dad. And we already know yeah. that obviously his career was probably the inspiration to get into the entertainment business in some way, shape or form. Right. But take me back how it was growing up in that situation of course. and take me back to the first thing that happened in the journalism time of your life where you said, I want to be in the actual film and television side of the business. Well, 
it's been a long and complex journey, but I, you have to understand that our, I start this way. Our dinner table was a, uh, like a classroom. You, you show up at the dinner table and my dad would be trying out these hypotheticals because he went on to do this after the CBS years, which I'll talk about in a minute, but he later on in his life, uh, oversaw these incredible seminars on public television and they would take a, an issue and, and put all these famous people around a big conference table and film it. And the issue might be something like this. There's a candidate running for president. He wins. He's won on an, on a whole anti-abortion ticket. You're a reporter. You find out the president who is in office right now has had his wife had an abortion 25 years ago and he got into office on an anti-abortion ticket. Two rights collide, the right to privacy and the first amendment right to know. Should you report that story? And you said, dad, I'm four. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so at the dinner table, by the way, the other thing was our dinner table was never just the family. There were always guests. Max Frankel was the editor of the Sunday New York Times. He lived down the street. Uh, famous people were constantly in our house. Edward R. Murrow to Walter Cronkite to Dan Rather. And it was the family was never enough. Edward R. Murrow would was be in at, your, the, in, in, in at the your house. dinner table. Yeah. Now, I was very young with him. But now you would have to sort of sing for your supper. And you'd say, well, you know, it seems relevant because it sort of shows that the president wasn't really forthright, but his wife has a right to privacy. So here's where I come out on it. And you're 11 years old and you think that's normal. Now, what it did to me, which I think kind of like uh, when I go back and really examine it closely, uh, it was a very, it was a very intense environment. And the way I got intention was by being funny. I would crack the joke. Um, I've never told anybody this story, but there was there was one time when I came home from a weekend in the country. Uh, my parents had a tiny little house up in the Berkshires and came home and the house had been robbed and the police came to the house. And I thought it would be funny if I told the cops that I didn't know who this man was, my father. <laughs> and he was furious, you know, grabbed me by the arm and said, this is not a time to get around. But I went for the joke. And so I was constantly going for the joke because that's how I got attention. And then later I veered into entertainment because I just wasn't as serious as he was. And I wanted to carve my own path and, and, and all that kind of connected. Um, But, but, but it was an intense environment to grow up in, but it was also one where you learned incredible ethics and you learned how important it was to examine everything, to be slightly suspicious, to be slightly cynical. And, um, you know, uh, it, it may have been very serious, but it was an incredible education, I guess, is what I would say. And I, and I want to paint my father out as being a guy who didn't know how to fun, have fun. He, he took us to giant games and Yankee Stadium and the Met games in Long Island and, and Nick games and and you know he was not such a sober presence but i will say this 
his idea of a, of, a, of a good time on a Sunday afternoon was to retire to the sun parlor with a copy of the Constitution. That's who he was. And, you know, it was an incredible experience, but it kind of pushed me in a different direction. To answer your question of when I actually wanted to make, you know, crossover, I was at the L.A. Times in 1987, and I was working in a cubicle in a windowless building, which was the newsroom of the L.A. Times. And I was drive out every day to interview, you know, 25 and 30-year-olds in giant offices with assistants and all these perks. And they were doing really creative things. And, and it, just, it just became very apparent to me that I didn't want to write about the business. I wanted to be in it, which I tried to do when I was back there being a concert promoter. But then I abandoned that to go on the more righteous path. I will tell you a story that connects to Jerry Weintraub, which I've never told. And uh, it, it really is the inner workings. This is how show business works. So I'm at the LA Times. Just want you to know, normally when anybody at, tells you in a meeting, this is how show business works, 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't know how fucking show business works. <laughs> but this is this 1% okay. of 1% of the time where actually somebody let, says it let me and they actually know how show business let, let works. Let me revise and say this is how I learned how show business works. <laughs> um, so so uh, as I was, I had been at the LA Times for a couple of years and I started to having some preliminary conversations with Brian and Ron about coming to their new company, Imagine. But it wasn't really happening deal wasn't happening the offer wasn't coming but why were they interested in a journalist there was a window of time where where journalists were perceived as really good fodder for development executives so there was linda opes who's a working producer now be a great guest for you who came from the new york times there was a guy named dale pollock who left the la times and went to work for david geffen i think michael london left the la times and went to work for simpson bruckheimer and there was me. These were the four people that their timing was kind of perfect, and, the, and we all landed in the business. For whatever reason, it was kind of sexy. I'm going to hire a journalist. And then it stopped uh, for a lot of complicated reasons. But um, when I was uh, 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 coming out of, uh, uh, of the paper. You're talking about how the deal was going slow. Yeah. So, so, so Brian, <laughs> sorry, thank you lost my train of thought brian and ron were were kind of flirting with me but it wasn't happening and i i talked to a friend of mine david kirkpatrick who at the time was running weintraub entertainment group and i said david i you know i don't know what to do here i've had two or three really good meetings i feel like they're going to offer me this job but but they haven't come up with the offer yet and he said uh stand by i'll call you back and what he did, which I later found out, which was incredible, he called Brian and he said, are you talking to David Friendly? And Brian said, yes. And he said, are you going to hire him? Because if you're not going to hire him, we're going to hire him here at Weintraub Entertainment Group. Which they may have had ambitions to do that, but at that point, I didn't know that. And I got the offer the next day. <laughs> and that's a true story. And so... People want to have to fight for something, you know, and that's part of, again, we're going back to sales, but it's like when you have a house, if you're trying to sell your house, you better have more than one buyer to close, right? You've got to have two buyers. So that was a great lesson uh, to me about not 
just show business, but about human nature, which is nobody really wants what they can have. They want what they don't think they can get or is going to be difficult to get. It's true. And you better have two buyers or you better be the kind of person who can say no if you want to say no. And normally when you say no, people want to turn the no's and the yeses. And, and I owe a debt of gratitude to David, who I don't even know where he is today. He's not so much in the business. I think he's back east. But he did me a huge favor by doing that. That was a generous thing. So, so it's not, everybody's not just out for themselves all the time, which is the cliche, the perception. But he really helped me. By the way, that job was the most important job of my career, was going to work at Imagine, period. For those of you listening, you probably are realizing this is probably the least I've ever talked in an interview because <laughs> I know about journalism and how you're supposed to listen and be a better listener, and I'm right. trying to be a better listener. I want to I tell you one interesting uh, button to the story about my dad. So when I finally decided I was going to go in the business and actually got my this job offer, I was quite uh, anxious about telling my father that I was going into the cesspool of show business. And I got the nerve up on a Sunday or something, and I, I, I got to call him and tell him I'm doing it. So I got him on the phone. I said, dad, you know, something's happened. I'm very excited about, I'm going to go work for Ron Howard, Brian Grazer at this company. Imagine you've never heard of them and I'm leaving the LA times. And his response was, is this something you're passionate about? I said, yeah, it's something I really care about. And he goes, then I think you'll do a great job and you should go do it. And he always said my whole life, you can be whatever you want to be. Just do it well. You know, there's no, uh, you don't have to be this. You don't have to be that. And in, but in my mind, I didn't really believe him. And to the point where I thought he was going to react negatively. And he was just proud of me for being able to make that choice and, and, and go for it, you know? And, and before he died, he got to see this movie. I did uh, courage under fire, which is still, I think one of the best movies I produced and really, uh, got me, got my producing career started where it's the first movie I had produced by credit on with, with Ed Zwick directing, who was a, an incredibly talented director has become a good friend, a man I respect tremendously and was very demanding as a director. And I really like learned the job on that movie and my dad loved it. He just, he just loved the movie. It was about, you know, I don't know if you've, any of you have ever even seen it. I but love it's the Denzel movie. Washington, and it's about friendly fire, and it's about all these things that would appeal to my dad. And I was so glad that he got to see that because, you know, sure, he'd have been proud of the success of Big Mama's House, but that movie wouldn't necessarily have been his cup of tea. But he loved courage under fire and he would talk about it all the time my son did this movie you've got to see it and that that was i I can't tell you what that meant to me much more than oh you wrote a great story for newsweek i read it you know whatever I, i knew it was still like in the shadow of the old man this was me on my own in a new field and that that felt really liberating and great it's just a great great movie and uh um, I'll never forget that movie. I learned my, um, I learned another rule about producing 
on that movie. And, 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 and this is a story I've told a number of times, but we were shooting. This happens all the time when you're making a movie. We were shooting an incredibly dramatic scene with Matt Damon, who had lost 42 pounds to play this drug-addicted uh, soldier. And he's being interrogated by Denzel, and, and it starts to come out. Things are starting to come out in the story. And very intense, very dramatic. I mean, the tension is so thick in that they're sitting at a little table outside and every take is getting blown by these planes that are flying because we're right near an airport, a local airport. And you can see the tower off in the distance. And after like the 10th blown take of takes that would have made it into the movie, their performances were so good, Ed takes this headphones off. He's got these Sony, you know, headphones on and he throws them down and he stamps on the <laughs> headphones, shatters them. He says, he looks at me and he goes, you're the fucking producer. Do something about this. Again, under stress, under duress, my first movie as a producer, I grabbed this PA by the, by the collar. I said, you have a walkie talkie? He said, yeah. I said, go over to that tower like a thousand yards away you go up in the tower and you ask politely the guy in the tower if he could hold the planes until we complete takes because it's about five minutes to do the scene and the kid runs over there and he goes up there and he's on the walkie and it works it works and they hold the planes we get the take and i get the high five again from zwick and again, under extreme duress, I was so scared when he breaks the headphones. Like he just, he hadn't really gone to that place yet, but he got a, he, he got a solution out of it. Again, I guess, I guess what's coming out here, there's a theme here. It's like, I got to be pressed up against the wall to do my best, I guess. I don't know. Is that true of everybody? I don't think it's true of everybody. <laughs> uh, I haven't pressed you up against the wall in this interview yeah, and you're doing fantastic. Doing okay. <laughs> But, um, you know, the, 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 I have so many stories like that. And I think, I think that's the way to teach people about the business. And, you know, just to be serious for a second, it's not about generalities. Tell stories, which is what you're doing. And people will begin to understand the job through the anecdote. That's um, the best way to teach. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.